Blessed be the name of the Lord. You can be seated. I'm glad that whether things are going well or things are not going well, we can say blessed be the name of the Lord. I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me again to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. How appropriate to move from a, a song that repeats the words of Job and his conversation with his wife to a passage that points us to the relationship of marriage. And um, we're going to draw our focus in even tighter. Over the past weeks, we've been looking at Ephesians 5 and the God's blueprint for the church or God's, uh, for, the, for the home and God's um, family in focus. We started with very generally the principles from Scripture of God's purpose for the home. And then we looked a little closer at the theme of this passage in the context of being filled with the Holy Spirit and God's presence in our homes, God's power at work in our lives and in our homes. And I want us to draw our attention. Uh, We're going to focus today on the relationship of marriage, but uh, this passage gives us God's plan for the family in the marriage relationship and in parenting-children relationships. As we think about that, I want to just say that this passage, like every passage of Scripture, is not limited to those that we think, oh, this is clearly only for those that are married, and so everybody else gets to sort of exclude that. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And so if we truly believe that this passage is profitable, then it's profitable for each one of us. It's profitable whatever your age, whatever your marital status. If you are not married, then if one day in God's will you are, then you need to understand the principles of marriage. And if you are single, then there will be those in your life that you will have influence with that you will know your friends, that you will need to know how to pray for them, how to give them godly counsel. And so this scripture is beneficial to us to understand, and not just in the marriage relationship, but in understanding why God designed marriage as he did. And we'll see some of that this morning in this text. But it's important when you have a purpose to also have a plan. God has a purpose for the family. God has a plan for the family. It's a, it's a divinely designed plan. Whatever you're going to do, if you're going to, uh, if a chef is going to cook a dish, um, it's generally wise to have a recipe to follow. Now, you may not have a written recipe, but I'll guarantee you, you've got a, a map in your head of how to get from this point to this point in finishing that dish. That's one reason I've never really done a whole, well, the main reason is is because I've got a wife that is an excellent cook, so I don't have to do a lot of cooking, but uh, trying to follow those instructions. If you are building something, if a builder is building a building or a house, he's going to have a blueprint that he's going to follow. He has a plan to achieve that purpose. If you are a frustrated dad on Christmas Eve who is trying to put together some toys for your children, it's important to have some instructions to follow. I'm not speaking from personal experience at all in this, but we have to have a plan to be able to accomplish that. If you're going on a trip, you you need some directions to follow, and it's important to get good directions. God gives us very clear and good directions. He gives us a plan for us to accomplish his purpose in the family. Now, in this passage, there are a couple of other parallel passages. Colossians 3 comes to mind. 
1 Peter chapter 3, that speak about the marriage relationship. I want to say from the very beginning this morning, I want you to listen to this carefully. This passage is one of those passages that will test your commitment and your submission to God's Word. This will test, am I submitted to following God's plan for my marriage, or am I going to follow my way? There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. Now, I'm not suggesting that your way for a marriage relationship is going to end in death, although... (laughs) Um, I've seen some couples that, you know, they didn't, they didn't think about divorce, but murder did cross their mind a time or two. There is a way that seems right. Very often when I've gone to this passage with folks about the marriage relationship, I hear things like, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but this is what I've experienced. Or this is what the Bible says, but you just don't know my wife. From the sounds of things, I'm probably not, not sure that I would do but, or want to, but if, if this is what the Bible says, but. I mean, can I say something parenthetically this morning? Just sort of insert this right here. In any conversation, don't ever start your sentence with that phrase. I know that's what God says, but. That means you are headed in the wrong direction. So this text will test your submission to God's word and to God's commands. This is God's plan for the family. We're going to focus this morning on marriage. This is God's plan for marriage. 1 Peter chapter 3, God inspired, inspired Peter to say that believers in marriage relationship experience the grace of life. The grace of life. That means there's some discussion over what exactly that grace of life is referring to. But whatever it means, it means that marriage is the opportunity for us to experience the grace of life. I want you to see four things this morning from this passage. I'm going to work through these pretty quickly. But I want you to see four ways that we in marriage experience and how marriage should be an experience of grace. The first thing I want you to see is in verse 21. Submitting yourselves, let me back up to catch verse 18 for the context. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God in the fear of God. This is the key to understanding this passage, that our family relationships of all types are to be one of mutual submission one to another. As we are filled with the Spirit, we are filled with the Spirit when we are first submitted to Christ. God, I am wholly and completely and absolutely surrendered and submitted to you and to your will and to your plan and to your work in my life. And the filling of the Spirit is the control of the Spirit as He guides us and He directs us and He works within us. The outflow of that is then that I am to be mutually submitted. We are to submit ourselves one to another. And this is where the great challenge comes in. Because it's fine for me to say, yeah, I want to submit to God. But when that means then there's a level of submission to those around me, then that's where the challenge arises. We struggle over this idea of submission. Very often, 
we focus on submission and people say, well, I don't like that word and I don't like all that means. And we generally are thinking that it's a bad thing. To understand submission, you would have to go, we won't take the time to turn there this morning, but Philippians chapter 2, when in fact we are commanded to model the submission of Christ, who submitted himself to the Father's will and submitted his well-being and his life to that of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. What is this mind frame? Let each esteem others better than themselves. This submission is submitting my well-being and my desires and my needs to the needs and the benefit of others. And that is what we are called to here where he says, submit yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. If submission is a bad thing, then God has just commanded us to do a bad thing. Is that going to happen, yes or no? No. If if submission is a bad thing, then Jesus was wrong in being submitted in his life. Is that going to happen, yes or no? No. God... God's not going to command us to do something that is bad, and he is not going to, through Christ, do something that is bad. So our whole concept, we bought into this idea that this is what submission looks like, and I'm not going to do it because ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. Pardon my grammar, teachers. I apologize, but that's the mentality, isn't it? Nobody's going to be the boss of me. God calls us to a spirit of mutual submission. How are we going to do that? That's when we begin to experience the grace. The first grace of life that we experience is the grace for mutual submission. What does this look like? Let me point you to verse 33. This summarizes this idea of mutual submission within the marriage context. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence, that she respect her husband. Back up to verse 25. Husbands love, y'all say this next word, just one word with me. Husbands love your wives. This is exclusive. Husbands are to submit themselves to the needs of their wife. This is key. There's a lot of, there's a tendency, there's a tendency for husbands to stop showing love to their wives and begin to show actions or words or thoughts of of love to someone else's wife. I am commanded to love my wife. Can I get an amen from Lynn? <laughs> One amen. Y'all appreciate the rest of you, the, the vote of encouragement there. I was listening for one on that one. I'm commanded to love my wife. Look at the next thing. Drop down to verse, or back up to verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. This kind of respect and this kind of relationship 
is an exclusive relationship that goes beyond being exclusive in a physical way. There are those who think, I've never committed adultery because there's never been any action, there's never been any physical action take place, but there is emotional and there is mental expression of love and respect that exceeds the boundaries of God-designed marriage. And God draws boundaries on that. We need to be very, very careful. I don't know why this is in my heart this morning, but I, I do know that it's the Lord in this passage speaking. I've heard, I've heard Christians talk about just sort of playing a, well, you know, I, I've told my wife that I would be faithful to her unless, and they'll name a famous movie actress, unless she showed up on my front doorstep, I'd probably go with her. And they mean it in a joking sort of way. I want to tell you something, that's not a joking matter. We got no business even joking or pretending or thinking about well, I would be faithful to my marriage vows unless this happened or unless this person showed up. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands. Men, love your wives. That's the fulfillment of this self, this grace at work in our life. This will be tested. This will be hard, but it is the grace of God, and we get to experience that grace. That's the second truth that I want you to see. We demonstrate in marriage the grace that God has given to us. Has God shown grace to us? Are you glad that God has demonstrated grace? How many of you have experienced the grace of God in salvation? Amen. Well, that's, I'm, I'm, we can rejoice in that. How many of you have needed grace from God since you've been saved? And we're glad for that. So why do we think that we're going to be in the marriage relationship and we're not going to need to express and extend grace to one another? There's a lot of talk about marriages and, boy, there's there's these differences and, you know, should we marry, marry when there's a lot of difference? You know what the biggest difference in a marriage is? biggest difference in any marriage is that one is a man and one is a woman. Now that may sound very simplistic, but those of us that have been married for some time know that men and women are just very, very different. And I don't mean just go look in the mirror. You can see we look a lot different. I'm talking about we think differently, we act differently. Someone has said that marriage is committing to spend the rest of your life sleeping in a room that's too hot, lying next to a person who's sleeping in a room that's absolutely too cold. Can I get an amen from some of the... Not to stir up any trouble this morning. I'm here to strengthen marriage, not tear it down. But you know what I'm talking about. We're very different. And the things... And this increases as time goes on. The things that attracted us to a person before we were married and we wanted it, we dated them and we loved them and we fell in love with that, over time, it's those very things that sort of get under our skin and annoy us and aggravate us. And you know what? We need grace. We need grace to show grace. We need to express the grace of God. I wonder if there's ever been anything I've done since Jesus saved me that has just bothered God. I suspect there probably is a lot. 
And yet, what does he do? Time and time again, he shows grace. So I get the opportunity in marriage for grace living. Grace living is living in such a way that my actions demonstrate the same grace toward others that God has demonstrated to me. I can talk about grace. I can share. I can speak about the gospel. I can talk about salvation. But where the rubber meets the road is when we come into contact with other people. And God has providentially designed for us to be in environments where this is going to take place. God has designed for us as believers to be a part of a church. And when we come together, we're very different. We have different opinions. We have different views. And sometimes we rub each other the wrong way. And God calls us in grace to love one another compound that by instead of being together for just a few moments two or three times a week to being together every single day within a smaller confines. We see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And God works through us. God gives us the grace to show grace. And that action becomes a demonstration. So this is the grace of life. It's the grace to mutually submit. It's the grace to show that we demonstrate the grace that God has given to us. And it is through that grace that the smallest task, the daily task, becomes sanctified to be a work of grace and an action of grace. Because before you got married, it was no problem at all for you to serve your, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your fiancé. If they needed something done, man, you just rejoiced to do it. But over time, that begins to change. And our natural inclination is not to serve. Our natural inclination is not to submit what I want to do for what they want to do. And so that grace works in us. And as it does, it turns that action into an action of grace. You see, we can serve one another out of a sense of obligation We can serve one another out of a sense of, I don't want to hear about this for the next three days, and so I'm going to do it just to get my husband or my wife off my back and get them to quit bothering me. Or we can do it because to do so manifests and models the love of God. And when we do, it brings glory to God. And so when I do that, it becomes an action of grace. Let me point out a a fourth experience of grace in marriage. And I think that this is one that is often overlooked. It's often missed. Because in the church and in the Christian life, when we think about marriage, our tendency is to try to do all all these practical truths, and there's all these practical things, and those are wonderful. There are practical, everyday things that we need to do to strengthen our marriage relationships, to express love, to show love. And we're often thinking about the negative. Oh, I don't, want to go, I don't want to go down this path. I don't want to go down this direction. I, I want to stay away from those negative things, the wrong things to do. And we miss and we forget one of the key truths of what Paul is saying here. And this takes marriage and it moves it beyond just some practical application for a husband and a wife. And it moves it to every single believer. And we see this first in verse 32. Paul says, this is a great mystery, but I speak 
concerning Christ and the church. You see, through marriage, we magnify the grace of God's redemptive plan. God's plan is from the very beginning of time. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before God ever joined Adam and Eve in marriage in the Garden of Eden, God had this mystery in mind. God had this truth in mind. God had the plan of redemption in mind. And he designed marriage as a a mystery, as a hidden truth to be revealed at a future time. And Paul says, here's the mystery. Here's why God designed marriage marriage as he did. Here's why this plan is in place. It's the truth of redemption. What that means is, is that marriage becomes a manifestation. It becomes a proclamation of the gospel. It becomes a proclamation of redemptive truth. And it means that my marriage and your marriage and our families are not just social constructs that God designed for the betterment of the human race and the furthering of the human race. God designed it to be a message of the gospel. And he designed it for it to be a blessing and for us to experience grace and for him to work in grace in us. What is this truth? Back up to verse 25. Paul is going to speak to the husbands here and he's going to compare the relationship between a husband and wife to that with the church. And I want you to see the grace of God not just to the church but in the church to us. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Aren't you glad that Christ loved the church? Aren't you glad? Herein is love, not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son to be the provided sacrifice for our sins. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What a blessed truth that God loves us. Christ loved the church. Now I want you to see the stages of Christ's work in the church because Paul uses the understanding of marriage for us to understand what Christ has done and is doing in us and what we as believers have to look forward to. Look in verse 25, or verse, the end of verse 25. He loved the church And what's the first thing he did? He gave himself for it. He purchased the church. He gave himself for it. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand the value of that? The blessing of this is that in the understanding in the New Testament in marriage, when a young man and a young woman were prepared to be married, their families would meet together and they would form a covenant between the two families. They would betroth these two young people to one another. This is stronger than our understanding of an engagement, but it's similar. But for that first meeting, they would gather and the, bride, the groom's family would pay a dowry to the bride's family. This was not a purchase of the bride, but it was a recognition of the value of that young lady to her family. And it was an acknowledgement of her value. The greater the value of the bride, the greater the price that was paid. What does that tell me about God's value of me? What does that tell us about God's value of the church? What is the price that our groom paid for his bride? The price that he paid is his own life. He bought the church for himself. He gave himself 
for it. God values you and I. This world puts value on people for a vast, vast variety of things, that their, their skill or their ability or their looks or what they can contribute to society. But that is not the value of a person. The value of a person is the love of God, that God loved us so much that he gave himself for us. They would meet together and they would pay the dowry. And so Paul says, Christ has done this. Christ has purchased the church. He has given himself for it. But there's a second work that he is doing. This is the work of preparation. He purifies the church that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. During the sometimes up to a year that a couple would have been betrothed to one another, the bride would spend the time... Interestingly, the groom would be preparing a place for them to dwell. Remember what Jesus said, I go away to prepare a place for you? That's where our groom is. He's preparing a place for us. The groom would prepare the place and prepare the home, and the bride would prepare herself for her wedding day. The groom would be involved with, that, with providing some of the things necessary, but the bride would spend that time in preparation. And that's what God is doing in us. That's what God is doing in the church. He saved us. He bought us. He gave himself for us. And now he is preparing us. The Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. And he is purifying us and making us holy and preparing us for himself. Let me just point out to us and remind us that one of the key truths in this passage concerning husbands and wives is the sanctifying work that God does through one another upon one another, that God is using your husband to sanctify you, that God is using your wife to sanctify you. God is using us to help prepare us as believers. This is the work that is ongoing, and so during this this year of betrothal, during this time of betrothal, till we are taken to be with Christ, we are to be prepared for that. That's the work that he is doing. But then he goes on to say, verse 27, why is he Why did he purchase the church and why did he sanctify the church? Verse 27, that he might present it to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. This is the time of celebration. This is when Christ will present the church to himself. At the end of that time of betrothal, usually at nighttime or in the evenings, the groom and his party of friends would come with a torch-lit procession. And they would come and they would travel from the place where they were going to reside to the place of the bride's family. And as they would come, the cry would go out, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And the bride and her party would join the groom and they would be joined together and they would return to the place of where the groom had prepared for a wedding celebration, sometimes lasting up to seven days. What a celebration. What a wonderful thing is going to take place. Let me tell you what's going to happen to the church. God has purchased us. God has valued us. God has redeemed us. He has given himself for the church and he is currently preparing us for the day 
when one day we will hear the call that says, The bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. The voice of the archangel and the trump of God shall sound, and we will be taken to the place that he has prepared for us. And John writes of this in Revelation chapter 19. I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thunderings saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. God is at work in us, and he who began a good work in us when he gave himself for us and purchased us is continuing that work of sanctification and purifying his bride to prepare us for the day when he will present us to himself as a glorious bride. And Paul says, when we are following God's plan for marriage, we are broadcasting that message. We are proclaiming redemption. We are showing to the world This is what God's grace looks like. Don't ever take marriage lightly. Don't ever take that relationship lightly. Don't take it as just something that's insignificant. It matters. That's why God designed it the way he did. That's why God cares about it the way he does. That's why God has prepared it as a proclamation of his grace in the work of redemption. Praise the Lord that he has purchased us. He is preparing us, and one day he will present us to himself. So what does it look like to follow God's plan? How do I follow God's plan? Let me give you quickly two closing thoughts. Number one, remember the submissive nature of marriage. Graciously submit your self-interest to that of your spouse. Graciously submit And I'm telling you that it will necessarily be by the grace of God. You will not naturally. There's a reason it's commanded. There's a reason these are given as commands. Why? Because you and I will not naturally do this. And I would love to stand here this morning and tell you that since Lynn and I got married over 28 years ago, that I have perfectly done this every single day, every single moment. But once or twice, I have failed. Only once or twice. No, no, no. Once or twice, I can't even say once or twice today. Probably once or twice every few hours. But I will tell you that this is what God has commanded us to do. And it is by his grace that we will do it. Number two, remember the spiritual nature of marriage. Make the spiritual well-being of your spouse a priority. Make the spiritual well-being of your spouse a priority. It is God working through us. Let me ask you something. Is your spouse, your husband, your wife, are they spiritually stronger after engaging with you and being around you and having conversation and interaction? Or have you tested their spirituality? Do they love God more for being married to you? You see, Christ is going to present his church to himself. And one day you and I will stand before God. And I believe we will 
be there when not only we give an account, but when our spouse gives an account if they're a believer? What will be our reaction? Will they be Will they be closer to God because of us? Or will we find out that we have been a hindrance to them? Remember the spiritual nature of marriage. Put the spiritual well-being of your husband, the spiritual well-being of your life, wife as a priority. Father, Thank you for the beauty of marriage. And Father, my prayer for each one here this morning, I pray first for those who are married, that our relationships will bring glory to you, that you will be magnified in us, that the gospel will be demonstrated. Lord, that we will see that our local hands don't begin serving in the community. Our local hands begin serving at home. We're leaving global fingerprints with our actions from our home. Lord, the vision you've given us starts in the family. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are not married. Lord, for some, it is your will for them to wait. For some, it may be that your will is to follow the path of Paul and others to remain single. But Father, I pray that they will be an encouragement, that they will see the beauty of marriage And where they will be an encouragement to their friends, their brothers and sisters who are in a marriage relationship. And Father, that they will realize with every single one of us that their value is not in their marital status, but Lord, our value is in your great love for us. That you valued each of us enough to pay an exorbitant price, the price of your only son. I pray this morning, Father, if there's one here that doesn't know that love, that this will be the day that they accept your gift of salvation. Father, help us to know that one day we will stand before you. If our spouse is a believer, we will stand perhaps with them. May we understand the account we will give. Help us to have not just good marriages, but godly marriages. We pray in Jesus' name.